Well, good morning and welcome to Hudson Institute here in DC. Uh, we are a research organization promoting American leadership for a secure, free, and prosperous future. Uh, my name is Jeremy Hunt and I'm a media fellow here. And today we'll be discussing Russia's wrongful detention of American journalists. And we have with us uh, Pavel Buturin, who is director of Current Time TV, uh, the 24-7 Russian language digital and TV network led by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, in, co in cooperation with the Voice of America. Uh, Buturin has been with RFERL since 2001, first as a producer for Central News, then as a video producer for the multimedia department, and finally as managing editor for Current Time TV. Uh, he's been, been a leading member of the Current Time team since its inception as a 30-minute television news program in 2014, uh, and was instrumental in its transformation into a successful 24-7 digital and television network. He's a graduate of Ohio University in the United States and has a master's degree in mass communication. Uh, and most importantly, he's the husband of Alsu Kormashiva, who, as we speak right now, is wrongfully detained in Russia. Um, and we also have joining with us uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gedman. Uh, he's acting president and CEO of Radio, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, and is senior fellow at Georgetown University. Uh, Dr. Gedman is co-founder of American Purpose, an online magazine network and policy forum dedicated to the defense of liberal democracy at home and abroad. He has served as president and CEO of RFERL previously, uh, was also the Aspen, uh, and also president and CEO of the Aspen Institute in Berlin, and CEO of, of the London-based Legatum Institute. And before his post in Europe, Dr. Gedman has spent a decade at uh, American Enterprise Institute, AEI, here in Washington, D.C., um, where he was a resident scholar uh, and executive director of the New Atlantic Initiative. Thank you for being here, Dr. Gedman. We also have Paul Beckett, uh, who's an assistant editor at Wall Street Journal, focusing exclusively on efforts, efforts to secure the release of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich from a wrongful detention in Russia. Previously, Mr. Beckett was the Washington bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and he's actually been at the Journal since 1998 and has served uh, in a variety of positions and won several awards, including the 2008 Overseas Press Club Award for his bureau's coverage in, in India. So th thank you so much for being here, Paul. We really Pleasure. appreciate it. Uh, and, and finally, our Hudson's own Olivia Enos, a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute. Uh, she specializes in human rights and national security challenges in Asia. And Ms. Enos has also served as an adjunct professor in the Democracy and Governance Program at Georgetown University. And additionally, she has a regular column in Forbes in which she writes on the intersection of human rights and national security challenges. Um, she's also an adjunct fellow with the Pacific Forum, and her commentary has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Foreign Policy, and a host of other nationally syndicated publications. Thank you, Olivia. Um, Pablo, I wanted just to begin uh, with you and just for everyone here, so it's kind of here. Um, what happened with, with your wife and, and, and just kind of can you take us pat in the can you just take us through the last several um, weeks and and the latest updates on the case that we heard even just last night um, of what's going on with, with Alsu Kormashiva who was wrongfully detained in, in Russia uh, thank you and thank you for having me here uh, so this past November Alsu and I celebrated 21 years together as a couple uh, of which 16 years we've been married unfortunately instead of being at home with the family and myself uh, she spent that um, anniversary in a cold uh, prison cell in Russia. Um, what happened was Alsu traveled uh, for what was supposed to be a brief uh, visit uh, to Russia to help out her sick mom in May. And um, after two weeks with her mother, um, she was about to board a plane to go back um, to Prague, where we usually reside. Uh, and um, 
minutes before boarding the plane, her name was called up uh, on a loudspeaker at the airport in Kazan, which is the capital of Tatarstan, it's an ethnic region inside Russia. And, um, you know, she had no other um, choice but to comply. And um, uh, she, um, was, she spent several hours uh, being interrogated. They seized her phone and they confiscated both of her passports. She is an American citizen but also has a Russian passport. So they uh, confiscated both of those passports, thereby preventing her from uh, leaving the country. Um, a few days later, she was charged with failure to register her American citizenship with the Russian authorities, which is now a criminal offense in Russia. This case dragged on for several months, and um, eventually a judge issued a small, relatively small fine. But before also was able to pay the fine, they arrested her. They came uh, knocking on her uh, mother's, uh, on the door of her mother's apartment, and they took her away. Um, too. They were they were wearing black masks, um, um, identified themselves as police, and um, uh, arrested her and uh, put her in pre-child detention. And she is now charged with failure to register uh, as a foreign agent. Uh, now, Russia has a uh, list of organizations and uh, individuals that uh, the Russian authorities consider foreign agents and our organization, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, including Current Time TV, uh, of which I'm the director, and many individuals, many individual uh, colleagues, journalists, are on that list. However, Alsu was not and is not on that list. Um, so on her part, there was very little expectation that she had to register as a foreign agent. And uh, Alsu is the first such case in Russia uh, where someone has been charged with the failure to self-register and when someone has been arrested and is kept in, in detention for this uh, uh, offense. Uh, now, also, is not a criminal. She, uh, she she's not convicted of any crime. The offense that she is charged with is not a, a violent crime. However, um, the judge and then uh, an appeals court rejected her attorney's motion uh, for house arrest. and. Uh, uh, and so she is uh, still in pretrial detention. Uh, we expect another hearing uh, this week. That <clears throat> we'll see what happens, but uh, you know it's quite likely that her uh, detention will be extended. Right now, um, officially, uh, she is remanded in detention until uh, the fifth of December. And during this time, what is your message to the United States government? What do you need our government to do here to put pressure to get also home? Also, is an American citizen. Uh, naturalized or born American, uh, we all have the same rights. Also, has the same constitutional rights. She has a, a right to consular access. Uh, that's a right that um, the, the Russian government hasn't granted yet. Um, uh, I, uh, I would very much like the United States government to. Uh, um, to designate also as a wrongfully detained person. I think this uh, designation would elevate her case to, to <clears throat> the necessary level and will effect, in effect commit the United States to uh, securing her release. Um, well, thank you for just sharing and walking us through that. And, and Paul, I also would like to hear uh, from your perspective, you are now full-time on the Evan Gershkovich case um, and he was also wrongfully detained in Russia. Can you walk us through uh, a little bit of the history of that and then the, some of the latest updates that you've heard on that? Sure, sure, thank you. Um, 
So Evan was detained on March 29th in uh, Yekaterinburg, 800 miles from Moscow, while he was reporting for the Wall Street Journal. And um, he's been in the Fortford prison, a security services prison in Moscow ever since. Um, as I hope uh, RFERL will not have to experience once this goes on for several months, and we're at month eight this week, uh, it gets, uh, you know, you just need to keep putting your shoulder into the effort to make sure that attention doesn't wane and the, all the efforts that we've done over the last eight months have a chance to bear fruit. So that was uh, behind the decision to have me work on this uh, full time. Um, as I've said before, I hope it's the shortest assignment I mm. ever have. But uh, we, you know that's where we are. Evan yesterday similarly was uh, approved for another uh, two months of pretrial detention, which will take it to the end of January. So he will be in prison for at least ten months. Uh, and I think one of the issues that uh, both of our organizations is going to face is the opacity of the process, especially in a national security case, but I imagine in all these cases, it's just very hard to tell uh, where the Russian legal system is going to take your case next. Uh, so um, I believe Russia could hold Evan for up to a year in these regular pretrial detentions, but if they uh, want to, they can apply for extensions, and we assume at some point it will be a trial, but the timeline is so vague that it's just very hard to work to. And in Evans' case, he did get that wrongful detention designation from the United States government. He did. Uh, how, how did that change things and kind of what, has that moved the needle at all in, in this case? I, I think what it does, it, I mean, essentially it, it kicks your case from consular affairs to the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, who's currently Roger Carson's. But he and his team have uh, authority and, and powers that uh, wouldn't otherwise be uh, granted to work for that person's release. They also spend a fair bit of time on fam family liaisons, so Evan's parents have benefited from that attention. And uh, you know, I think uh, wherever possible, that should be a category that journalists should be uh, strongly considered for because it, uh, you know, journalists are targeted for being journalists, whatever the circumstances uh, of their arrest. And uh, if that is the case, then they uh, and in my view broadly, they deserve special attention from the American company. Um, and Dr. Gedman, at RFERL, um, where you've, you've spent much of your career working with these journalists who put themselves in, in harm's way um, to, to, for the, to further their journalistic mission, um, we know that it's, there are others who are even now locked up in, in Belarus and, and Crimea. Um, and so it's, it, is, it, it seems to be a growing issue uh, in Russia and, and also places where uh, under Russia's influence. Um, what are you seeing kind of on your end and, and what are the similarities in some of those cases? So, so thank you. And it's good that you mentioned that. <clears throat> We're here from our part to principally talk about ASU today. But we have uh, one in Russian-occupied Crimea. We have four in Belarus, that's two current employees. It's a spouse who said, let my husband go a year and a half, okay? And we have a former employee who's helping the families of imprisoned in months pretrial detention. Um, and by the way, parenthetically, if we look inside Russia and across the region, we see trends. I can tell you just in the last six weeks, a Russian activist in Kyrgyzstan was kidnapped 
He's turned up in Moscow in a pretrial detention facility, and more recently in Georgia, picked up, disappeared an activist, and now human rights advocates thinks he is in pretrial detention in Russia. So, so there's a trend. It's, it's my view that the story of Evan and the story of Alsu is about the future and fate of these individuals. We've got to get them free. They have families. It's unlawful. It's unjust. You know, remember Martin Luther King Jr. talked about law and unjust law. This is unjust law. We've got to get them free. But it's also the story about the quality, virtue, and value of independent journalism. We cherish it, and we're seeing how others loathe it, despise it, detest it, seek to crush it. And I think, to, to be a little bit geostrategic about it, uh, these things do not take place in a vacuum. They're taking place in a larger context where the fault lines become clear, where we do have a struggle on between liberal democracy and authoritarianism. Different stripes, different colors in different places, but that's on right now. I think you can see that around the globe. You can certainly see it in Central Asia and Eastern Europe and in Russia. And, I, and it's interesting you bring that up, this, the struggle with, with liberal democracy versus authoritarianism. And uh, I wanted to ask you, Olivia, because you've done a lot of this research in, in this space. I mean, what are these kind of authoritarian regimes hoping to accomplish by the wrongfully detaining American journalists? And, and what is their end game here? And how do we make sure they don't accomplish it and we get our citizens back home? Mm. So I think there's really a battle being waged between... Um, free and open states and authoritarian states. And we're seeing this play out in real time. And the consequence, the you know, end of the equation, are lives like those of Alsu and Evan, who are spending their time behind bars for exercising their freedom of speech, their freedom of association, uh, their freedom of expression. These are absolute freedoms that are protected here in the United States but they're being violated by authoritarian actors like Russia. Um, Jeremy, as you mentioned, I work on Asia. I don't actually work on Russia. But in Asia, we see this happening in China. We see this happening in North Korea and Burma and Cambodia. We see 1.2, uh, or excuse me, 1.8 million Uyghurs currently held in political re-education camps today. Over 120,000 North Koreans also in political um, prison camps there. And we just see these authoritarian actors um, seeking to maintain their grip on power and doing whatever it takes to quash individual liberties and freedoms in order to centralize their power further and further and further. This is hugely problematic. And I think we, as individuals who are in the free world, this means that we have a greater responsibility to defend freedom because we are not behind bars, because we can speak when folks like Alsu and Evan cannot. I think there are, you know, maybe three lines of action that I would like to highlight today. Um, and I think they involve three different actors. One is Congress, one's the executive branch, and the other are individuals or civil society. Um, when it comes to Congress, um, the Tom Lantos Commission has a project called the Defending Freedoms Project. The Defending Freedoms Project allows members of Congress to adopt individual political prisoners. What does it mean to adopt a political prisoner? It means that you're taking on their case you're going to elevate their case at every opportune moment that you possibly can. Um, you're going to raise this in hearings. You're going to send letters to members in the executive branch. 
Um, you're going to liaise with the government, in this case Russia, um, trying to seek for their release. And we've seen that the, the Defending Freedoms Project actually has been able to be influential in the release of um, individuals from Russia, but also from other parts of the world. And so perhaps this is a potential line of action um, in that case. With the executive branch, of course, um, folks already mentioned here that uh, individuals can be labeled as wrongfully detained, and then um, the special envoy for hostage affairs will take on that case. And of course, Evan has that designation, also does not. Um, but you know, members of Congress, in the same way, can liaise with those individuals at the um, Special Envoy for Hostage Affairs and in such a way elevate the case so that it's getting the time and attention from the US government that it merits so that we can press for their release. Um, but third and finally, and I, I truly don't want to underestimate this enough, the role of individuals in civil society, the importance of events like this, is that for folks who are imprisoned, it reminds them that they are not forgotten. Their cases are being raised. That's why it's so important for journalists also to be writing about this and elevating the case. That's why it's so important um, that also individuals consider our own role. Um, in my previous job at the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong Foundation, we worked a lot with political prisoners in the Hong Kong context. And one initiative um, that was run by the PR firm that we worked with, Ridgely Walsh, was to um, create postcards that had the artwork from Jimmy Lai. Many people might be familiar with him. He was the founder of Apple Daily. He's a, he's a proponent of freedom in Hong Kong. Um, and he's been behind bars um, ever since 2020. And um, Jimmy Lai is a devout Catholic. He did religious art since he's been in solitary confinement. He's a 60, over 60-year-old 60 man. Um, but Ridgely Walsh had his religious art printed on postcards and had uh, children from a Catholic school write letters to him while he was in prison so that he knew that he wasn't forgotten. We forget what it's like because we get to enjoy freedom every single day. But receiving a letter like that or a note that reminds us that people are advocating for them, are remembering them, and care about them is so incredibly meaningful, even if it doesn't result in their ultimate release. So I think those are some action items. There's others, but I'll leave it at that for now. Thank you for sharing that. That's that yeah. extremely helpful. Um, and kind of another question I have, and I'll start with you, Pablo. I'd love to kind of get all of your thoughts on this as we work down. But just uh, we talked about how the United States getting that, that designation you know, as a wrongful detention is important. Um, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on just on the rest of the international community, what we need from other nations around around the world. Um, I think in Alsu's case in particular, with her different, with her interesting kind of diverse background, she of, of, of a lot of these folks should be you know, getting a lot of support from different nations, uh, Turkey and other places. Can, can you just talk a little bit about that? Um, and I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts mm -hmm. with, uh, from everyone else about what the international community can do to support wrongfully detained journalists. Uh, yeah, also is an ethnic Tatar, which is an ethnic minority in Russia, uh, and uh, it's predominantly Muslim. Uh, and uh, Tatarstan has a, a historical affinity to Turkey, uh, also is... Uh, fluent in Turkish, uh, she even taught uh, Turkish to uh, other people and children. Um, and she identifies as a Muslim. You know, I, um, <clears throat> I think uh, you know, I would appreciate more involvement from other countries, perhaps, you know. We, we, again, we're trying several tracks here, and one of them could be Turkey. Um, and, but I understand that certain 
complications and complex it is now in, in relationships between the United States, Turkey, Russia, Ukraine, etc. But you know, we want to explore every possible avenue. Um, I know that um, other Islamic countries have played a role in you know, mediation, certain releases and, and prisoner exchanges uh, with Ukraine, uh, between Russia and Ukraine, like <coughs> Qatar. So again, perhaps that's another avenue we may want to explore. Um, so yeah, we would like to expand um, you know, all of our avenues. Um, so yeah. Dr. Gettman, what are your thoughts on the role of the international community in these cases? So, so I'll, I'll say two things to that. It's a great question. Um, among the like-minded, you know, the democratic nations, there's a natural solidarity, or ought to be, that ought to be exploited. And it, uh, and by the way, Paul and I didn't know each other before, and now we see each other nine times a day. <laughs> How about that? Not too shabby, actually. And uh, Paul's for me to tell this story. I was in Berlin earlier this month, inside government, outside government, Bundestag, NGOs, Tagesspiegel, Die Welt am Sonntag, and every meeting I had, whether I knew the people or hadn't met them before, it always started with, how's Alsu? Mm. And the second question was, do you know anything about Evan? Not kidding. And that's the community of democratic nations, but it needs to be mobilized, it needs to be energized. It doesn't, you can't just let it sit there, but there's tremendous potential. And then in parallel, I would say, there are a number of countries that don't quite feel the spirit, if I may put it that way. I'll say Viktor Orban's Hungary and Erdogan's Turkey, and I can think of a number. I could say Austrian bankers. Um, but but uh, what we do and what one should do is appeal not on the morality and ethics and character of journalism, but humanitarian. I mean, if nothing else, humanitarian. There's a lot of support to be had in the international community broadly to tell people, in our case, in Asu's case, you don't have to like our politics, and you don't have to have this passion for free and independent media. But a woman who's a mother of two kids, who sits in an overcrowded cell in winter without blankets, sleeping with the lights on, this is not OK. We need your help. I, the awful reality of it is that when a country does this to uh, one of your reporters, uh, it works. They hold your person until you give them something that they want, at which point there's an exchange. And um, often those exchanges would appear to be pretty lopsided. It could be a reporter or any of your citizens. So I think it's really incumbent on the US government to figure out creative, and other nations to figure out creative ways to deter this from happening in the first place. Right? I mean, it's terrible when it happens. And the ideal would be that the imbalance of the <coughs> equation is uh, set right, and countries uh, stop viewing it as in their interests to do this, because at the moment, I think they see, in Russia's case, uh, they gain both leverage over the United States for whatever it is that they would seek in return, and they uh, silence a independent press. So after Evan was taken, I think virtually all, if not all, American reporters in Russia left, understandably. 
So you have Russia, which is a, it's hard to imagine a country between Russia and China, which has its own very not great record on this. Between those two countries, it's hard to imagine two countries who have a greater say over the future of the United States. And they are both being covered, in effect, uh, from a distance. Our coverage of Russia now happens in Berlin and Warsaw and Dubai and London and Washington. And our coverage of China, we still have some people in the Grand Air. But um, for a lot of our reporters, that is Hong Kong, Singapore, New York, Taipei. And you, and you just can't. Uh, they do a great job, and all credit to them. But you cannot, as we all know, <coughs> replace being on the ground to report. So whatever we can do to deter this from happening in the first place. Uh, and then, uh, you know, what Jeff said, really, um, finding allies so that it's not just the United States. It's not a necessarily just a bilateral engagement because U.S. lines into Russia now are not strong, as we know. And you'd say, well, sanction them. Okay, I mean, they've been under an extraordinary raft of sanctions over the last several years. And, you know, this happened to, obviously, to us eight months ago and to also much more recently. So uh, what are more creative ways of alliances of like-minded nations and engaging the nations who still do have something to talk about with Russia and who still do have lines into Russia to explain to them that this was a terrible idea and it's not in their interest to perpetuate it. So Paul, may I add to that? Just very briefly. So, so when you describe the situation like that, it, it makes me think that uh, you know, there's so much in this life and world and foreign policy that involves navigating ambiguity. But this does not involve navigating ambiguity. And it should be a great opportunity for us to mobilize. I, I think that there are some instances where you can actually talk about right and wrong and black and white. And, and so in these instances, and certainly also in Evan, you, you really have this conflict between fundamental decency and cruelty, actually, all politics aside. So in building these coalitions, the like-minded and the somewhat like-minded, I think there's an immense opportunity here to do good. Mm -hmm. Well, in addition to all of the things that I already outlined, I think that there is a really important role for the international community to play in information and intelligence sharing. This is actually one of the reasons why you know, it would be so helpful in Elsie's case for her to be designated as wrongfully detained because the Special Envoy for Hostage Affairs um, or the Office for Hostage Affairs, they are looking more into the intelligence, the background. They can give more regular briefings. There's consular access, et cetera, um, that I think is so important when somebody is wrongfully detained to be able to have that access. But I think you know the conversation that we've been having here is really that they're there are those countries that are freedom-loving, that respect the rule of law, that, you know, I know it's cliche in D.C., but everybody says the rules-based international order. But there are those that respect that and those that do not. And I think that lines are increasingly being drawn, whether that's in the realm of economics, security, and now in human rights and values. And I think that we have to acknowledge that head on, and we have to say, how are we going to work better with those allies that we do have close connections with, whether that's in Europe or in Asia or elsewhere? And those alliances need to not be solely security focused, which many of them are these days. 
I think that the time for only focusing on security is way, way, way behind us because authoritarian governments are challenging our values daily. And so I think given that, um, this is an opportunity to take a stand to say, you know, not just the US, but all of these other countries stand on the side of those who are imprisoned and they stand on the side of those individuals because they stand on the side of freedom. I think making that distinction is really, really critical and important. Um, and Dr. Gebbin, I wanted to ask you about this too, but in terms of right now, we're seeing Russia crack down on journalists. Is this in response to, um, as kind of a desperation attempt and, you know, with the kind of waning uh, war efforts, you know, mm -hmm. maybe concerns about um, maintaining support, you know, within Russia for the for the war effort? We know that also was very uh, influential. I mean, I think you remember you saying, Pavel, that she, her voice, people, a lot of people know her and she's very influential. Um, is, is it a desperation or is it a kind of a, a, a flexing muscle saying, no, I can detain American journalists and there's nothing you can do about it. Where do you kind of see this um, playing out from Russia's perspective? Well, my speculation, I suspect there's a number of things happening at the same time. Um, for years now in uh, Western capitals in Washington, we've always played this parlor game. Uh, Vladimir Putin isn't a strategist. He is an opportunist. No, he's not. He's I always thought, you know, as they say, ask the wrong question, get the wrong answer. I've always believed and been fully convinced he's a man with a vision. His vision is domination at home, okay, and influence and control and the near abroad. That's number one. And number two, I believe that he sees the world through a particular lens that has it that Russia defines itself in relationship principally to the United States of America. Love the European Union and Britain and all these other places. But I think at the end of the day, he has seen for years that he has a weak hand. He plays it strongly. And a principle of that game is build Russia up by cutting America down. I think those are the points of orientation. So right now, I think he understands what's at stake in Russia, Ukraine, and the region. <coughs> He can't let Ukraine go for the region, but also for its effect inside Russia. You can't have, you can't have Ukraine liberal and democratic or Western-leaning or EU-oriented. Remember, when the start in 2014, it wasn't NATO expansion that was the trigger, you know, the mighty America creeping in. It was the baby steps toward maybe EU membership. And he just crushed it, right? That was how this started. So it's a long way of saying, I don't think it's gasps. I don't think it's complicated tactics. I think he continues to try to consolidate power at home and assert his influence and power across the region. And if you look at my view, if you look at it through that lens, what happens in Ukraine, what happens with Alsu, what happens with kidnapping people in Georgia and Kyrgyzstan, it all adds up to that vision, in my view. Um, well, I want to, and by the way, I'm going to ask this last question, and then we'll open up to the audience. If any of you have questions, you can uh, just raise your hand. We'll, we'll, we'll love to answer your questions as well. Um, but, uh, Paul, we'll start with you, and then we'll kind of work our way down. Uh, here at home, for, for, for Americans, everyday Americans at home who are watching this, who want to help, you know, have heard about Alsu's case, um, what can they do to support? Um, and then and just generally, 
how does it work? Do you believe that social media campaigns, those types of things are, are helpful? Um, what does that look like from kind of grassroots efforts here at home to support American journalists abroad? Well, about the social media campaign, letters and, and, and uh, you know, even pictures of, of tweets and, and Facebook posts, Instagram posts, um, these things are really the, uh, a true lifeline for also, you know, she, um, there's not much going on in prison, you know, and so uh, she constantly writes um, that uh, our letters are the most important thing for her right now. Uh, anything from, uh, you know, her friends, uh, her supporters. Um, um, in terms of what Americans can do, you know, if you're an American voter, you, you can write to your member of Congress and uh, um, and uh, you know petition uh, for also, and uh, so that uh, Congress also um, exerts pressure on the State Department for the designation of also as a wrongfully detained person. Um, but yeah, uh, anything um, public, I think at this point. Uh, is helpful uh, uh, to ELSO's cause. For some time, we were advised not to make too much noise, especially in the first few months. We were hoping for this first case, um, you know, to, to resolve itself uh, successfully without much involvement uh, from the press um, or the State Department. But uh, we've passed that uh, um, at that point. Uh, now, the more uh, awareness we raise uh, about Alsu's case, the better it is for her eventual release. I also wanted to add something about what we're talking uh, about uh, about Russia. The problem there is that we see a complete removal of compassion from 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 public discourse. Uh, we see that in, in the war in Ukraine and the mobilization. The human being, the individual, just stopped existing. You know, it's it's only the state, uh, the uh, you know, uh, state security. Uh, there's no uh, even talk about individual rights or freedoms. Um, this is why um, this is what makes Russia so different now from the rest of the world of the free world. Um, there is no primacy of individual rights over the diktat of the state. Um, there's, no, there's no expectation even for uh, a, a prisoner to be treated humanely. Uh, also, was recently visited but, uh, by a, um, a, what's called a public oversight, members of a public oversight commission um, whose job it is to, to uh, you know, exercise oversight over penitentiary facilities. And even those people were accompanied and escorted by security agents. So even they were not allowed to make uh, a proper assessment of, of her conditions. Um, all communication from also official communication uh, comes from a, uh, an, an official censored online system. Uh, anything negative about her conditions is blacked out. Sometimes we are able to unscramble those uh, censored uh, words, and, um, um, and all that gives us concern about her conditions. So that's why I want to emphasize the humanitarian aspect of this problem, that we want her conditions, well, we want her to be released. But before she is released, we want her conditions to improve. And uh, we want her to finally speak to her children uh, and uh, you know, even to see her mother, because again, she hasn't been able to see her mother for more than a month now. Thank you for sharing that, and um, we'd love to hear from the rest of the panel on what everyday Americans can do to, to make a difference, um, and what kind of what efforts you think would be helpful as we push this case forward. 
I'll focus on one thing. Um, we want what you got, the determination. Uh, we don't think that there's one clear path or one formula or one secret this or that or the other, but we're convinced that we do need support from the United States government, and we want this wrongful detention determination, and so help us. Write your representatives. Call Tony Blinken. Post on social media. We want that outcome because we think that is one of the things that will help us on the right path to eventually get her out. I think we view our role in this as creating a landscape on which something good can happen. We're not going to negotiate with the Russians. It's a government-to-government -government exercise that will eventually get Evan back, whichever government it might be that is helpful. Uh, but our feeling is if we don't create a landscape on which it can happen, then it won't happen. Uh, so we view creating that landscape through four lenses. The first is uh, helping, making sure Evan has whatever we can provide to him that is helpful to him um, and to his family and to his friends. So that's a very specific uh, area of focus. Uh, the second is dealing directly with the US government to try and uh, find solutions to this. That chiefly happens through our lawyers and business executives, because we keep a pretty clear line between our journalists and our uh, folks uh, really negotiating or advocating for his, directly for his release. Uh, the third is uh, internal to the Wall Street Journal. We're very conscious uh, every day that our own staff are looking at this. We've had, we have lots of reporters around the world. We're very conscious that they're looking at this saying, what are you doing for our colleague? Because that could easily be me. Uh, so we, we uh, owe it to them to uh, show and owe it to Evan to show that we can be the employers that he would want us to be in a situation like this. And then the fourth, um, you know, I don't, we're journalists, so we tend to run at the story. So you do whatever you can, uh, and action is much better than inaction. Uh, so that is where, and we just believe that creating awareness of Evan will help in his case, it will help hopefully in other cases like Alsu's, and it will help to raise the issues that we've been talking about this morning. So how do you actually stop this happening again? This is, you know, the, we are all here representing individual cases, but those individual cases, plus others around the world, add up to how can we combat what is an increasingly dangerous and uh, uh, sort of um, repressive atmosphere in many parts of the world against journalists. So um, I think it gives us an opportunity to raise that, and it keeps pressure in all the right places so you don't have to keep retelling the story and people feel a certain obligation to act. Uh, so our view on that end is social media is hugely valuable. Um, introducing uh, you know, congressional members to Evan's story and issues that are raised is, is valuable. Uh, working with as many press freedom organizations as are willing to work with us is valuable. Just making sure that uh, Evan and therefore the issues that Evan and Alsu's case has raised are not forgotten. Because if they are, nothing will happen. Uh, I mean, the United States government and Russia are as far apart as I think they've been in decades. So how do you find a way through that to make sure that we have good results for both of our reporters and 
uh, for and these issues get raised so that hopefully it doesn't happen again. Olivia? Yeah, their cases need to be raised at the highest levels of the U.S. government. That means Biden, that means Harris, that means Blinken, that means members of Congress talking about their cases every single day and at every opportunity, whenever there is a diplomatic engagement with Russian counterparts, their cases must be raised by name, not out in the ether, not anonymously, not, oh yeah, we have, you know, you have American citizens, this is an emergency, and their cases must be raised by name um, for all the reasons that we discussed, not just for their individual families, of course, that is you know, the core of this, um, but because we want them to see freedom and they need to see freedom. So hopefully um, we see these, raise, these cases raised at the highest levels and that they know they're not forgotten. Yeah, that's, and we're going to open up to questions now. But before that, just I think I think that's spot on. I mean, it, it is especially the younger generation. The, the attention span is so short, and these and the news cycle moves so quickly. People are constantly distracted by something else. So just constantly saying their name, remind them of Alsu's case, remind them of Evan's case, um, to keep it at the forefront. Uh, I think is, is going to be key. Um, we have time for, for maybe a couple questions here. If anyone in the audience would like to uh, ask questions, anybody here on, on the panel. Um, for those of you who think about Putin's motivations in all this, I'm just wondering if you could reflect on um, what he has to lose by taking American journalists. Anybody? Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I, <laughs> partly because, um, because of the situation, I have absolutely no idea what's going on in Putin's mind. We have no idea what's going on in Putin's mind. But... Uh, I'd say his motivation is pretty clear. He gains leverage over the United States and he silences <clears throat> what remains of an independent press. So from his perspective, he achieves two goals and it puts the U.S. in a very, uh, and other nations that be willing to help, in a very reactive situation. Right? I mean, so, you know, he's created a, a field on which he holds our reporters and therefore holds the advantage. And that's where I think we just, again, need to figure out with the U.S. government or other nations, how do you flip that script? Because it's hard to see what he loses by doing this. Of course, there will be international condemnations, but we just worry that uh, those aren't condemnations that he pays any attention to. So. Now, I, I would add to that, Paul, and Diane, I think you put your finger on something important. Uh, I suspect he has very little to lose. And so when you ask yourself, uh, why does he do these things? Part of the answer is because he can. I remember several years ago having a conversation with then President of Estonia, Tom Ilves, who said, you Americans never understand this Kremlin and this guy, Vladimir Putin. He, he thinks what's mine is mine, what's yours is mine. Okay? Sounds so simplistic, you know, Cold War-ish. But, but there's something to that. And he has behaved and undertaken deeds because he's been able to. So I don't know how we flip the script, as you put it, Paul, but part of it has to be a new template. I, I don't have the answer. Part of it has to be a new template that what would be the expression where he's 
disincentivized, you know, from these things, where he, he's got a calculation. He says, I see the benefit. In the case of also, here's what we think happened. We don't know, but what we think is that when she went in, and they knew, and they monitored, and they waited, and she was leaving in early June, and then they detained her the first time, okay? We think that June, July, August, September, we think they had her, and they thought, there's value here. How much value? And when? And what do we need this for? And then October 18th, for whatever reason, maybe it was Ukraine-related, said, yep, we have something of value, and we're going to play this card right now. But to your question, Diane, what spoke against them nabbing, grabbing, waiting, assessing, and then playing the card? Very little, as far as I can tell. I have a slightly different take. I think that um, inaction on the part of the US government and the world will mean that Putin didn't really have very much to lose. But at least in my region of the world, when I look at what happens in China, when I look at what happens in North Korea, and then you know, I'm no Russia expert, but there's a lot of similarities. It's a communist model. When individuals are taken as political prisoners, they're taken because of a regime's weakness. The regime fears its people the most. And I find it interesting that in the North Korean context, in the Chinese context, in the Russian context, that many of the political prisoners that get taken, that are, they're often dual nationals, Korean Americans, Chinese Americans, in this case, um, you know, at least one Russian American, they're fearful of their people. And so the actions that the US government has to contemplate when it thinks about its policies vis-a-vis -vis human rights is to tie them with some of the security challenges that we have and to recognize that for authoritarian regimes, violating human rights is a central core goal. It's how they maintain their grip on power. So if you can shift the balance of power within a country so that the people themselves have more power than the government is exerting, then you have a shot at challenging the government's authorities. I don't have you know, a, a whole playbook on how that's done, although I've seen a couple of positive actions in my own region of interest that I think do that, promoting information access for ordinary people on the ground, I think is really important uh, for that reason, um, targeting sources of revenue that are illicit, like forced labor in the context of Uyghurs has been very powerful. I think these sorts of tools that tip the scale when it comes to the balance of power internally are incredibly powerful. And it's why I think policymakers in Washington have to wake up and realize that human rights are not issues that we get to once we've dealt with the security or economic concerns. They're issues we have to deal with in tandem because they're central to how these governments are operating. And I think it's going to take a while for the US government to get there, but we have to push it. Absolutely, absolutely. Do um, we have maybe have time for one more question, and then we'll close out here. I presume that part of the motivation for the detention of these journalists is to deter others from reporting on these sensitive issues that they're reporting on in a way that's accurate and not friendly to the Kremlin's narrative, right? Also reporting on very sensitive cultural linguistic rights issues, and then as well reporting on economic issues in an uncensored way. But you know, to 
two American journalists having been detained in Russia this year, there are still Western journalists that are still reporting on these and other sensitive issues in Russia. How does this you know, trend impact how Western newsrooms are going to be approaching Russia and specifically for their in-country operations? What does that look like? Is Russia successfully deterring folks from coming into the country? What's your thought, Paul? And I think you just have to look at the results uh, of what has happened, which has been um, a lot of people withdrawing, understandably withdrawing their staff from Russia. Um, you know, one alternative you think would be, well, um, if you don't have foreigners there, then hire uh, more local staff. But that in some ways just makes the local staff a target without the protections of or at least the you know, leverage of a foreign government should they uh, run afoul of the authorities. So uh, I think the result, again, is a very brave and dedicated uh, core of reporters who still cover uh, Russia, uh, both inside but much less and outside. So all credit to them. But I think they would be the first to admit that there's nothing to replace being on the ground. Uh, so... Uh, we think that's another probably secondary goal that Putin has achieved, but it's hard to see how that is going to change. Uh, it would probably be a pretty brave news organization that sent another American into or applied to. So the other thing to remember is Evan was an accredited reporter. He was operating with the accreditation of the Russian Foreign Ministry. So the idea that he's an accredited reporter who did everything right and now winds up on a false charge of espionage it's hard to see how another American youth organization would say, okay, that's a risk we'll have to take. Uh, so I think from Putin's end, it's done, it's had that, for him, advantageous effect. So, uh, <clears throat> Dennis, good question. I agree with that. And I think that uh, we're entering into this problematic new world. We entered it already. So someone asked me the other day, um, would also have been arrested if she hadn't published. And wait a second, you know, that was her job. Okay, so we can't go back and say, also, if only you trim your sails, they'll leave you alone. Okay, so isn't that kind of a dangerous slope? You know, we had one part of our company. This is second time I've been president, first time acting president. We had some years ago one part of our company where I sat with our journalists and editors from Country X, and I said, um, do we ever self-censor? Yeah. Pull punches. I said, no, 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 we don't do that, because we play a straight game and all that. And then there's a little pause I saw in them. I said, ever? And then one of them said, well, you know, in fact, in a quiet tone, if we report critically about the president the first family, they will probably close the bureau and kick us out of the country. And then that will have an effect on our ability to report, because then we'll be entirely from the outside and lose our ability inside. And then, maybe encouraged by me, they decided, let's just test that, though. And you know what happened? The regime closed the bureau and kicked us out of the country, and it impeded our ability to report properly because we we're no longer inside. But in my view, that's not a happy result, but it's the price to get the integrity right. 
because you can't pull. If you don't pull punches, you don't pull punches. If you don't trim sales, you don't trim sales. You can't have a conversation where you say, we don't trim sales, except you have time for a cup of coffee. I mean, it, it, you know, this stuff, you're either all in, you know, or you're not. But I think Vladimir Putin is very savvy and he knows what he's up to. So he knows these secondary and these parallel consequences. And I, I would just add, I think that should embolden all of us who do have the ability to write freely from the outside to write as accurately as we can. There are still brave people that are inside who are, I know in information and secure environments, I work a lot on North Korea. In North Korea, people cultivate sources of brave individuals who are willing to speak out and share what the, in, what the country is like inside. It helps us to be able to get information from the outside. Um, in that way, we're elevating their voices, even if we have to do so anonymously. And I think that's such an important you know, new facet. If authoritarian regimes are going to make it more challenging for us uh, to write, we just keep writing and writing and writing and elevating the voices of people who can't write freely within their own country from outside. Um, so I think that's how we have to think about these difficult And I want to change my hats for a second and speak as the director of Current Time TV. Uh, um, we still have, despite everything that's going on, with also with other uh, journalists inside Russia, we still have an ability to report from, in, from uh, inside Russia. Uh, we have very brave uh, freelancers and stringers working for us uh, on the ground. Sometimes anonymously, sometimes we don't, you know, put them in bylines. Uh, but yeah, and make sure and then go to our English language page, rfirl.org, for all the updated reporting about Russia. And as we. Well, I just probably want to give you opportunities to uh, share for, with those back at home. You know, where can we find more information about Alsu's case, um, and, um, and for folks that want to kind of tr follow along. And, and our hearts are with you, and we want to Thank make you. sure we're supporting yeah. in any, any way possible. Yeah, I think you can find all the all the information that you need in our in our press kits. There, there's a link, and uh, there's information about um, um, Alsu's case uh, and her. Uh, wrongful detention in Russia, as well as our other uh, colleagues who are detained in uh, Russia, occupied Crimea and Belarus. Um, but yeah, also follow us on social media. We, we, we put the story alive. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you, uh, Dr. Gedman. Thank you, Paul, for being here representing Evan. Thank you for Olivia, for our own. And thanks for all uh, making time to be here on a very chilly, chilly uh, morning here in D.C. Thank you. And hope you can stay in touch with us at Hudson.org uh, for, for our next events. Thank you. Uh -huh.